I always picture it as being kind of like a diamond. And when you hold it out and you turn it around and you kind of turn it around and let light shine on it, it has these different facets and you begin to see different things. And I realized that as I was looking at the text again yesterday, that I was seeing something that I had never seen before in this verse. In fact, in what Tommy read to you, I have for many years been reading a verse kind of backwards, almost as if I were dyslexic. I had switched some words around, and we're going to get to that in a little while. But first I want to tell you about a friend of mine. His name is Sidney, and Sidney is serving a life sentence at Angola Prison in Angola, Louisiana. I've known Sidney for eight or nine years. I'm not, I'm not sure exactly how long I've really known him. But when he was 25 years old, he had already spent 15 years of his life in prison or reform school. He never, ever considered ever going straight, so he kind of accepted the notion that prison would always be his second home, but in reality, it has turned out to be his permanent home. You know, barring an intervention from the governor or an act of God, Sidney will die at that prison. As a career inmate, though, he has worked hard to earn the respect and he worked very hard for a long time to earn the fear of other inmates. He was in more than his share of fights out on the prison yards. And when Angola was still known as the bloodiest prison in America, he gave as good as he got. And he was willing to even take the punishment that was dealt out by the prison officers. But then one day, something rather dramatic happened in Sidney's life. He listened to a preacher who came in to preach at the prison. And to his surprise, what the preacher actually said made sense. And it wasn't long before Sidney gave his life to Christ. And overnight, he experienced a radical transformation. Now, he has been sitting in my classes for a number of years, and every once in a while I ask these men to share their life experience as much as they'd like. And one time as Sidney was sharing his testimony, I interrupted him at that point when he said he had that instantaneous transformation. And I said, Sidney, how did the other prisoners, how did the other inmates treat you when you gave your life to Christ? I mean, did they lose any respect for you? And the reason I asked him that question was because I know how hard it is sometimes to live outside the walls as a Christian I just couldn't even imagine what it might be like living inside the walls with hardened criminals. I wonder what hardened criminals would think of somebody who one day would have fought back and fought back with a vengeance, but the next day would choose not to fight back again, but rather would be willing to turn the other cheek. Sidney's answer kind of surprised me. He said, my fellow inmates actually respected me more after I gave my life to Christ. They respected me because I walked the talk. And if I were going to give this message a title today, it would be called Walk the Talk. See, that's what Sidney began to do. He began to walk the talk. And then he said, 
after a while, when they saw that I really meant business about following Jesus, they actually began to listen to what I had to say. They watched the way I lived. And as a result, I was able to win a number of them to Jesus. And I got to tell you that Sidney kind of sells himself a little bit short because he's not just won a few people to Jesus. He's won a lot of people to Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit. He pastors one of the churches down there today and is a leading influence within that body of Christ within those prison walls. See, this man was one of those people who undoubtedly has made a big difference in his world, kind of like the person who mentored him for many years, Bishop Eugene Tannehill, who spent nearly 50 years of his 73 years in prison. And he was a changed man, too, because he suddenly found out that he was a child of God. See, many people, because somebody came to know Jesus and because they saw a transformed life and saw people begin to walk the talk, also became members of the body of Christ, became productive members of society as a result of these testimonies. When I think about the early church, the church that formed shortly after Jesus rose again from the dead and then ascended into heaven, I think that it too had a powerful influence. People began to see them not just talk about Jesus, but literally walk the talk. In a few short years after the suffering, the death, the resurrection of Jesus, guess what happened? The entire world, as they knew it, turned upside down. People were drawn to the message of these so-called Christians, followers of Christ, these Christians. Now, why is it? It's because early Christians were committed to walking the faith. Their lives were a living testimony. Their lives, as they intersected with other people in their community, was preaching a powerful message about Jesus. That's why I began to think the other day that if we want to make a difference in our world, whether we want to do that as individuals, and I think by and large most of us do, most of us that are here today really would like to make a difference somewhere. And I can tell you that as your pastor, and I would say this to every church I've ever pastored, I truly believe that we as a church want to make a difference in our world. We don't want to just be a, a nice little church on a nice little stretch of road with a bunch of nice little people doing nice little stuff for, for each other. We want to impact this world somehow, some way, in the name of Jesus. But if that's going to happen, we need to be committed to not just talking about it, not just adopting the field of dreams attitude, you know, build it and they'll come. Because folks, you can build them till the cows come home. They ain't going to come. Sometimes you got to go, and sometimes you got to talk. But more often than not, you're going to need to learn to walk that talk. See, the world is not necessarily interested in hearing intellectual arguments about Christianity. They want to see Christianity in action. They want to know, if you're a Christian, does it actually work in your life? They have no use for hypocrites. I spoke to someone in the last couple of weeks who told me that one reason they would not come to church is because the church is full of hypocrites. You know what I told them? I said, no kidding, come, I'll point out a few. And some of you are wondering who I'd be pointing at. 
Well, quite honestly, I'd point at myself because I can be a hypocrite as easy as anybody. There are times when I don't necessarily walk the talk. The church is full of hypocrites. This is not a, a, a place for saved people. This is a hospital for sick people, sinful people. Of course there's going to be a hypocrite or two or three or four hundred. I mean, that's why people like Mother Teresa or Billy Graham or you know, even Jimmy Carter are treated with such respect. I mean, even by our cynical society. Now, you may not necessarily agree with a lot of Jimmy Carter's politics. You may not really agree with Mother Teresa's um, theology. You, you may, you know, think, well, Billy Graham is nothing but decision theology. Uh, but, you know, you can't help but respect their integrity. And integrity is an important word in the Bible. It means to have a one-piece heart. It means to be who you say you are, or as Dwight Moody said, it's who you are when nobody's looking. Are you a different person when nobody's looking? Are you a Sunday morning Christian and a Monday morning pagan? Do you sing the name of Jesus Christ in church on Sunday and then use the name of Jesus Christ in the marketplace the next day? See, people of integrity, that's what we need to be to make an impact, whether we are, people, are individuals or we're talking about a church. That's what holiness is all about. It's walking the talk. If we do, people will listen. If we don't, they won't. And see, when what we say doesn't measure up to what we do, people are going to look at us and go, hmm, so that's what Christianity's all about. A friend of mine, we were talking about premarital counseling one time. He says, oh, I got to tell you this story about when my fiance, fiance and I went to our pastor for marital counseling. And we had a number of sessions with him to get ready to be married. Uh, we talked about how to handle conflict and how to communicate, uh, the importance of sharing values and how to stay in love and on and on. But at the final session, the pastor said, I need to tell you something before you leave tonight. It's this, my wife and I are getting a divorce. You know, my friend said, you know, that was a, that was a blow. I, I mean, it caused us to question the validity of everything he had told us in that counseling session. He said, my fiance wondered whether we should even get married because maybe if the pastor, if it didn't work out for him, if God didn't work for him, if the Bible didn't work for him, maybe it wouldn't work for us. See, friends, when our lives don't measure up, and I talked to our confirmation class about that this last week, about how Luther talks about the curb, the rule, and the mirror. You know, and we forever are jumping the curb when we leave the church, when we don't measure up like that ruler, and if we can't honestly look ourselves in the face in that mirror and know who we are and whose we are, maybe something's a little bit wrong. See, unless we begin to live holy lives, and when I say holy, I'm not talking about perfection. I mean, none of us is going to be perfect this side of heaven. But if we do it in the name of Jesus, the Bible says we can be holy because God's holiness covers us. It's that robe of righteousness. That's why... You know, when people say, oh, the pastor doesn't wear a robe, I kind of go, oh, come on, give me a break already. I do have a robe on. I have the same robe on that every 
Christ follower wears, and that is the robe of righteousness, robed in holiness. That's what God says. That's what God sees. God doesn't see, you know, whether you got a, a black kind of Hawaiian shirt on like Derek has. He doesn't see, you know, the, the white shirt that Hugh's got on. He doesn't really care. You know, Tommy's got a gray suit. He doesn't care whether Ted's got a tie on or not. He doesn't care whether John's leading forward and praying that I'm finished preaching real quick or whatever's going on. What God says is, I see in the heart. It's the same thing he said about Saul. Remember when they found King Saul? King Saul was six foot four. I bet he looked like Tom Selleck. That's the way I always picture Saul in the Old Testament. They wanted him as king because he looked the part. And what, is God, what did God say? I don't look at the outside. I want to know what's in the heart. Does he talk the talk, and does he walk the walk? Well, let me, let me give you a few clues here from God's Word. How can we learn to do that? Because I think it's really important. We need to learn it and relearn it. Let me give you three things today. I think the very first thing I would tell you is we just need, we just need to get serious. We need to get serious about living up to our potential as Christians. I mean, just think about that. Each of us is capable of doing a whole lot more than we're actually doing. In fact, our greatest limitation is our unwillingness to try. We often don't lack the ability, we lack the ambition. It's kind of like the guy who said, every once in a while I get the urge to work, but I lay down and take a nap till the urge goes away. Yeah, we just need to work. Tommy, you'll appreciate this. A man was driving down an old country road one day, and he lost control of his car and ended up in the ditch, so he went to this ranch and uh, asked for some help. And so this old rancher came out and said, yeah, just let me go get old Dusty, and we'll get you out of the ditch in no time. A few minutes later, the old rancher shows up with Dusty, kind of a swayed back old, almost blind mule. And after Dusty is hooked up to that car, the old rancher cracks his whip and he shouts out, pull, buck, pull. Nothing happened. So he cracked that whip again, and he said, pull, Clyde, pull. Nothing happened. Finally, he cracks his whip again and says, pull, Dusty, pull. And that old swayback blind mule pulled that car right out of the ditch. Now, the man thanked the rancher. He said, but I, I'm really kind of curious here. If your mule's name is Dusty, why did you say pull Buck, and why did you say pull Clyde? And the rancher said, well, you know, Dusty is old, and he doesn't see too good, and he doesn't have too much confidence. If he thought he had to do the work all by himself, he wouldn't even try. And see, that's the way some of us are. And that's why we gather ourselves together, because there's strength in numbers. See, the, our greatest limitation is often our unwillingness to try. I've never shared the gospel with Jesus. I, I'm afraid to try. You know, I'm only one person. What could I possibly do? I'm nothing special. I can't make any difference. I'm just the sinner. God couldn't use me. And guess what? Some of us sing that chorus over and over again until we believe that almost more than we believe the gospel. But in my Bible, according to the gospel, we were created for what? For greatness. We were created to be the children of God. And I've seen this t-shirt before, God don't make junk. God makes good stuff. In fact, in the New Testament, we see that we have 
unlimited potential. Go back and, and think about it. If you've got your Bibles, take a look at what, what John says here in verse 2. He says, Dear friends, now we are the children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. See, we are God's children. I mean, if, if you confess Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are one of God's children. And you are destined to be like Jesus. When Jesus comes back, man, when God looks at you, he's not going to see some beat-up old sinner. All he's going to see is Jesus. Now, it's a sin for us to put on false humility and claim less. I mean, anytime we kind of badmouth ourselves or throw ourselves our personal old little pity party, no, we're God's children. We're capable of so much more. And if you can imagine what the power of one person, imagine what happens when a whole bunch of God's people work together. See, if we make the effort to live up to our God-given potential, there's no telling what God can do in us and with us and to us and through us. You know, you might not be Mother Teresa. I mean, you might not be a, a Billy Graham. You might not be a Sidney Deloche. But you can make a big difference in the lives of other people. We just need to hold ourselves to a higher standard. And for heaven's sakes, we are God's people. And that's a pretty high standard. We need to hold ourselves to that. We need to say, I'm no longer going to live for mediocrity. I'm not going to live for mediocrity in my spiritual life. I'm not going to live for mediocrity in any other level of my existence. I'm God's child. I am going to do what God has called me to do. I just want to live up to the potential he's given me. See, that's, kind of, that's part of the first step. You know, to walk the talk, to get serious about living up to the potential God has given you. The second thing I would tell you is to spend time with Jesus. Now, you'd expect me to say that, but as, if, if you're a Christian, you've got to spend time with Jesus. If you're not a Christian, guess what? You should learn to spend time with Jesus. Now, I'm going to get down to this verse that I misread for many years. It's verse 5. It says, no one who abides in him sins. I'm going to say that again. No one who abides in him sins. For some reason, I always read that backwards. I saw it as, no one who sins abides in him. Do you get the difference? When I read it, I'd think, well, that rules me out because I sinned today. And when I sinned, I thought, well, I kind of forfeited my chance of abiding in Jesus for the rest of the day, and I hope that sometime I could kind of finally cut the sinning out and then start abiding. But that's not what this Bible verse says at all. In fact, what this Bible verse says is absolutely, positively astounding. And when I tell you again what it says, some of you are going to go, really? Look at it. It says, no one who abides in him sins, period, end of paragraph, end of discussion. No one who abides in him sins. I mean, that sounds too simple to believe. In fact, it almost sounds wrong. But it's the absolute truth. I and mean, what John is telling us here is if you want power over sin, if you want the ability to live that holy life, if you want to be able to consistently walk the talk, then spend time with Jesus. He said when you spend time with Jesus, 
you begin to lose your ability to sin. I think that's kind of cool. doesn't say you'll never sin again, but you begin to lose that ability. Now, I know some people who moved to Texas from Illinois. I'm not talking about Nancy and me. But when they first arrived, people used to kid them a fair amount about their northern accent, you know, the Chicago kind of accent. However, after they lived there a number of years in the south, the old way of talking completely disappeared. I mean, they now almost sound like they lived in Texas all of their lives, y'all. See, that's exactly what happens when you spend time with Jesus. When we're with him, we're not sinning. I mean, it says no one who abides in him sins. That's why we need to make the effort to be with him, not just one hour on a Sunday morning, but all day, all the time. This is why we spend time with him in prayer. We spend time with him in Bible study. We spend time with him in Christian fellowship in our, you know, our Bible study times, our small groups, our daily activities. See, doing these things in his presence gives us the ability to walk the talk. There's a third thing I would tell you, and that's look for the chance to do good. Look for the chance to do good. John Wesley, a uh, great hymn writer, uh, he and his brother Charles wrote a lot of hymns. These are Methodist guys, but a lot of their hymns end up in the Lutheran hymn book too. John Wesley's a great preacher. John Wesley one time said, do all the good you can by all the means you can in all the ways you can to all the people you can as long as you ever can. That's pretty good advice. You can't build a reputation on what you're going to do. At some point, you've got to pull the trigger. At some point, you've got to, what do they say, fish or cut bait. Good intentions alone are not enough. In fact, in our text, what does John tell us in verse 7? It says, let no one deceive you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous. A rather eager young evangelist knocked on the door of a guy one day and said to him, Sir, are you a Christian? The man said, Why ask me? I could tell you anything. Why don't you visit my banker or my grocer, my farmhands or my kids? You ask them whether I'm a Christian. If I am or not, they, would, they should certainly be able to tell. You see, there is a time, friends, when you, either, you have to either put up or shut up. Walking our talk means that we need to look for the chance to do something good. There's more to living the Christian life than just not sinning. In fact, the only people I know that don't sin are dead. And I don't think they're capable of doing much good anymore. We need to pursue good works. Now, before you want to ride me out of town on a rail, let me explain good works. These are not good works that are going to earn our way into heaven. That's not the purpose of good works. But they help us make a lasting impact on our world. And guess what? Good works are also why you were created. Did you know that? I mean, every Lutheran ought to have Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10 committed to memory. For by grace are you saved through faith. It's a gift of God, not of works, 
lest any man should boast. But then it goes on and says, but to these good works which were prepared in advance for you to do. And guess what? If God prepared something in advance for Nancy to do and Nancy doesn't do it, guess what? Some people don't get impacted by it. God's got stuff out there for every last one of us to do. Now, what kind of good works are we supposed to do? I don't have the vaguest idea. I can't tell you what they are for you, but they will make a lasting impact. Uh, you know, it's not simply the case of going and working at a soup kitchen on Friday night. It's not about going out and making house-to-house -house evangelism calls. Could be. I'm just talking about stuff that happens spontaneously around the clock on any, any given day whenever the chance arises. Now, some of that's done in organized ways. I mean, that's why we get together as the body of Christ, as a church. There are ways to organize it. But sometimes when we try to organize it, we spend so much time organizing it, we never get anything done. My first church, we had about nine or ten boards. Lots of them. Hundred people elected the boards, and you'd go to the board of evangelism, and what'd they do? They'd meet for an hour and a half and talk about evangelism. Did any of them ever go share Jesus? No, not really. Go to the board of stewardship. What are they talking about? They're talking about money. But when the pastor says, "How many of you tithe?" and nobody raises their hand, you realize you got the wrong people talking about stewardship. What do they say? Boards are what? cul-de-sacs into, into which great ideas are lured and then strangled to death. All I'm saying is that sometimes we can spend too much time talking about it and not doing it. But at the same time, I want you to know that it's good for churches to organize things. We need to do that because there's power in people doing it. But if we really want to make a difference, it only really happens in this kind of day-to-day -day reality of living out the life of Jesus as it flows out in our life into the neighborhoods, into our schools, into the streets, into the marketplace. No. Think back in the Bible to the story, the story of the Good Samaritan. You all know that one? The story of the Good Samaritan? Okay. You got a guy who's on his way from Jer Jericho to Jerusalem, and it says he fell among thieves. And if you've ever been on that road, that's a terrible, you wouldn't want to go there at night. They jump out, they beat him, they rob him, and they leave him laying on the side of the road naked and dead as far as they know. As he lies there, three men walk by. The first two were religious. One was a priest, you know, the local pastor. The second one was a Levite, kind of like the vicar or somebody else who kind of helped around the church. They passed him by. That's because they were busy with organized ministry but didn't have time for immediate compassion. Then along comes the Samaritan. Ah, and I would have loved to have been there when Jesus told this story. Because when Jesus would have told this story and everybody was listening, they would have wondered why the pastor and you know, the priest and the Levites, well, they, they would have said, oh, no, we know why he wouldn't do that because priests and Levites can't touch dead bodies. And this guy looks like he's dead. And if he, they touch the dead guy, they can't do their work, their religious work for, I don't know, 90 days or whatever it was. They would have understood but when Jesus said a Samaritan stopped, I bet you their mouths dropped open. They were stunned because you were talking about a person that the Jew absolutely hated. They would spit when they heard that word. But who stops? It's the Samaritan who has compassion. He bandages his wounds, puts him on his own animal, 
takes him to the local inn, pays for him to stay there as long as it takes for him to heal up. Now, I think one obvious point of this story is that the Samaritan's kindness wasn't the result of some scheduled activity. He didn't pull out his day plan and says, oh, uh, 9.30, do a good deed. It wasn't planned that way. It was was spontaneous. The priest and the Levite, what Jesus was saying, were very religious, but they did not walk the talk. The Samaritan walked his talk. When the opportunity presented himself, guess what? He was ready. Now, I said earlier in this message, I am sure that every last person who's here today wants to make a difference somehow, some way, somewhere. I just want to suggest to you that you keep in mind that your greatest opportunity to do that most likely will never be pre-scheduled. It's not going to pop up in your day planner. It's not going to be on your Blackberry. It's just going to pop up. It'll surprise you. Again, I'm not opposed to organized ministry by any means, but organized charity alone does not change the world. That's not how the early church changed the world. They surely implemented certain programs. They organized different methods of outreach. But the early church changed the world because so many of their people were committed to around-the-clock radical holiness, always looking for some way to make an impact on some person somewhere. And guess what? When people encounter that kind of radical Christ-like living, it has an impact. Let me close with this story. In the second century, a Roman general discovered that he had Christians in his army. He had 40 of them, 40 Christians. He got them together, had them arrested, and ordered them to denounce Christ or die. They refused. It was in the dead of winter, so this Roman general had these men stripped naked and placed out in the middle of a frozen lake. On the shore of this frozen lake was a heated bathhouse, and he told them that whenever they were ready to denounce Jesus, they could come back to this bathhouse, this warm place, and they would be saved. Well, as these 40 Christians gathered out in the center of that frozen lake, naked and cold, they began to sing. The song they sang went this way, 40 brave soldiers for Jesus, 40 brave soldiers for Christ, will be true to our God and stare death in the face, though we perish on this lake of ice. We are 40 brave soldiers for Christ. The bathhouse attendant sat in the warmth of that bathhouse and listened to those soldiers sing. When suddenly one of those 40 Christian soldiers broke down and he abandoned the pack and he ran into the bathhouse and everything was quiet then for a while and then one of them began to sing again 39 soldiers for Jesus it was at that point when the bathhouse attendant was so moved by the determination and commitment of those 39 that he ran out of the bathhouse onto the lake threw off his clothes singing 40 brave soldiers for Jesus. See, that's what happens when we walk the talk. Remember Paul and Silas in jail in the middle of the night? 
chained up. An earthquake takes place. What are they doing? They're singing hymns. They're just having a great old time worshiping God. Earthquake comes. The doors open. The chains fall off. The warden comes. And he thinks they've all escaped. He's ready to fall on his sword and die. When Paul says, don't do it. We're all here. I've told this story in prison, and I said, guys, you tell me, what would happen tonight if suddenly a big earthquake hit Louisiana State Prison and all the doors sprung open? What would you do? Well, they'll all laugh a little bit, because, I mean, a lot of them, you know, they straight to the gate. <laughs> but, not, but one of the guys, he says, Doc, he says, I know that a lot of people would want to head to the gate. He says, but I think we as Christians would stay here and do the responsible thing. Do you think that might influence a few other people to stay? Probably. Walking the talk. See, when we live our lives as Christians, out in this world, I don't believe that people can do anything else but listen and notice. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for making us your children, calling us to be your children. We pray that we will be people who not only know things, but people who also do things. Not because we think we're going to earn our salvation, but because we need to be consistent. Help us to get serious about living up to who we are, the fact that we are children of God. And Lord, provide opportunities for us to spend time alone with you. And then teach us to have open eyes and open ears so that we might look for the chance to do good in your name. It's in that precious name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.